Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Wednesday, August 24th, 2022, and the end of week 26 of the Russia-Ukraine War. It's been 3,100 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 182 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine War. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, when production of today's episode started, the war had entered its sixth month. We acknowledge the bravery, tenacity, and unity of the Ukrainian people in the face of a numerically superior belligerent. Historians, military planners, and politicians will study the defense of Ukraine for decades to come. Second, the United Kingdom Ministry of Defense validated our assessment from August 21st and 22nd that Russian forces are running low on ammunition, causing combat operations to become ineffective. Third, The Kremlin's attempt to explain the slowdown in combat operations as going all part of the plan defies the reality that the Russian advance came to a near-complete stop a week after NATO-provided HIMARS were deployed in Ukraine. Fourth, our assessment that the Kremlin and Alexander Dugin would use the death of Daria Dugin to bolster support for the special military operation was correct, with her hastily prepared funeral turned into an anti-Ukrainian spectacle. Fifth, it's Ukrainian Independence Day. When this episode was written, there had not been an increase in attacks. We maintain, however, that the risk for increased attacks on civilians, civilian infrastructure, and command and control centers is very high. Sixth, there is significant evidence that Ukraine is setting conditions for an offensive in the direction of Polohi. Seventh, insurgent activity is increasing across Ukraine, with reports of incidents in Luhansk, Zaporizhia, and Kherson. Eighth, we maintain the battlefront is frozen across Ukraine, and time is running out for both belligerents to launch brigade or army-sized offensives. And finally, the initiative will go to the first belligerent who can make brigade or larger-sized offensives on any front. Let's take a look at some regional updates. Starting with the Donbass region in the slovyansk bilohorivka berestova Triangle, Russian forces did not conduct offensive operations in northeast Donetsk for the second day in a row. The self-declared Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, 
reported the Consolidated Police Detachment of the Main Directorate of the Ministry of Internal Affairs of Russia for the city of St. Petersburg and the Leningrad region had been deployed across Donetsk due to an increasing insurgency in the occupied territory. The Main Directorate of Intelligence of the Ministry of Defense of Ukraine, or GRU, reported that Roskvardia forces had been deployed in occupied Luhansk to support military police in trying to consolidate control over the region. Quick assessment here. The redeployment of the Roskvardia, LNR, and deployed detachments from St. Petersburg and Leningrad have likely pulled troops from the front line. Conspicuously absent from rear guard and security duty is the Chechen Roskvardia. We had assessed in May that Russian forces were capable of capturing the Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts in the short term, but would be incapable of sustaining occupation in the medium and long term due to a lack of military police forces. Russian forces shelled Siversk and the surrounding settlements and Bilohorivka in Donetsk. The number and intensity of shellings has declined, and there were no airstrikes in the region. Our assessment for the slovyansk bilohorivka berestova triangle is unchanged from August 18th. You can find it in last Thursday's episode starting around minute two. To the south in Bakhmut, private military company Wagner Group, terrorist elements of the Imperial Legion, and the 2nd Army Corps, led by the 6th Cossack Tank Brigade of the Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, attempted advances throughout the region and were unsuccessful. Assaults were led on the settlements of Soledar, Bakhmutska, and Bakhmut. Airstrikes from the Russian Air Force supported the attacks on Soledar and Bakhmut. A reconnaissance in force attack was made on Zaitseve, with Russian proxy forces suffering heavy losses. In the Svetlodarsk bulge, Russian forces led attacks on Kodema, Zaitseve, and Kurdyumivka, Based on the report of an attack on Kurdyumivka, we have coded Dacha as under Russian control and advanced the line of conflict further north toward Kodema. Our assessment in Bakhmut is unchanged from August 9th. We recapped it in yesterday's episode starting around minute two. In southwest Donetsk and western Zaporizhia, Donetsk People's Republic separatists attempted to advance on Krasnohorivka, north of Avdiivka, but did not gain any new territory. Separatist troops repeated attempts to advance on Pervomaisky from the south and occupy the village of Nevelsky. Despite repeated attacks, artillery, and air support, the understaffed and undertrained units were unsuccessful. Renewed fighting erupted in Piski, where DNR forces continued to struggle to hold control over the small village. The pro-Russian social media account Rybar claimed that Russian forces control Piski, but acknowledged that they do not occupy Nevelsky, nor have they advanced into Pervomaisky. Our assessment? We maintain that Piski is a contested no-man's land. Marinka was also shelled and hit by airstrikes. The Russian Ministry of Defense claimed that DNR separatists controlled over 75% of the city, but provided no proof to support the claim. NASA Fire Information for Resource Management Systems, or FIRMS, showed heat anomalies in the eastern part of Marinka, close to the waste heaps, but no activity in the central or western regions. Ukraine was accused of shelling the government center for Donetsk in what was likely a false flag attack by Russian forces. Local officials reported the office of self-proclaimed DNR leader Denis Pushilin was targeted. 
Video and pictures from the district showed light to moderate damage on several buildings. People in the area moved to underground pedestrian walkways and tunnels during the shelling. Some assessment here. FSB colonel wanted war criminal and Kremlin pariah Igor Gurkin Strelkov wrote on Telegram, quote, The government center of Donetsk, for the first time at all, including 2014, was subjected to targeted and powerful shelling by the artillery of the armed forces of Ukraine, including rockets hit the administration building of the head of the DPR, hitting exactly in his personal apartments and secretariat. End quote. We believe, based on the warnings from Ukrainian intelligence and the United States Department of State and our own analysis, that Russian forces did the attack. Ultimately, the Russian occupation of Crimea and parts of the Donbass in 2014 was based on the ongoing attacks on Russian-speaking people in eastern Ukraine. Despite these claims, Ukraine never once attacked the decision-making centers of the DNR or LNR. In our assessment, this was done to erode Western support of Ukraine and to set conditions for attacking Ukrainian decision-making centers in Kyiv. South of Donetsk, Russian forces continue attempts to advance into Novomikhailivka in an apparent attempt to maintain military tradition. As in previous advances, they were unsuccessful. On the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border, Russian forces attempted to advance on Zolotoniva again, but did not move the line of conflict. NASA firm's data suggested there is major fighting around Polohi. Fires were indicated along a long stretch of the T-815 highway in the city's eastern part, which is the main ground line of communication, called a G-lock or supply line, to Russian-controlled Bilmak. Fires were also shown to the north of the city along the tree lines that would serve as approaches. We continue to receive reliable reports that Ukraine is setting the final conditions for an offensive in this direction. Some quick assessment. The heat signatures on NASA firms are consistent with heavy artillery and rocket attacks targeting a defensive line. Our team has increased our monitoring along this axis. Ukrainian and Russian forces exchange artillery, rockets fired from multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS, an indirect tank fire west of Velika Novosilka. Based on repeated reports of the settlement of Stepova being shelled by artillery fire and UAV reconnaissance flights, we've moved the line of conflict south and coded the settlement as liberated. In Russian-controlled Tomak, an ammunition depot was destroyed by rockets fired from HIMARS. A video showed a large fire with secondary explosions, and NASA firms showed thermal anomalies. Insurgents in Russian-occupied Mikhailivka killed the puppet government mayor Ivan Sushko in a car bombing. We have expanded the area of insurgency in Russian-occupied Mykolaiv. Our assessment for southwest Donetsk and western Zaporizhia is the same as it was on August 17th. We assess that Russian forces can't secure the remainder of the Donbass before August 31st. In southern Ukraine, Russian forces continue to press Ukrainian defensive lines due to the arrival of reinforcements and testing capabilities. It is also likely an attempt to spread out Ukrainian resources to delay or prevent the next phase of the ongoing counteroffensive. Let's move on to the Kharkiv region. 
There wasn't any significant ground fighting northwest, north, northeast, or southeast of the city. Russian and Ukrainian forces traded artillery, rocket, and tank fire. We assessed on August 12th that Russian forces were testing the capabilities of the Ukrainian Territorial Guard taking over the defense of Izum, and were correct. Positional fighting, reconnaissance, and probing for weaknesses will continue to occur. On the Izum axis, tradition continued northwest of Izum, with Husaryushka and Chepil shelled, with Mosbanova added to the mix. Russian forces attempted to advance on Bohorodichne using reconnaissance in force with support from the Russian Air Force. They failed to improve their position and retreated. There was scattered artillery fire from Nortsivka to Prishib and Tetyanivka, southeast of Izum. Some assessment here. The shelling of Prishib and Tetyanivka on the south bank of the Seversky Donets River is not a prelude to an attempted wet crossing by Russian forces. They lack both combat strength and artillery support on the axis. The exiled Borova City Council reported that many Russian troops and support equipment had left the area 20 kilometers northeast of Izum. The council reports that since the occupation, the region had been assigned to occupied Kharkiv leadership, but was recently transferred to the Izum district. There was no reason given for the change. Our assessment in the Izum axis is unchanged from August 8th, which we recapped in Monday's episode around minute 12. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. Looking now at the Dnipro, Kherson, Mykolaiv, and Zaporizhia regions, in Kherson, the Russian Ministry of Defense claimed that the settlement of Blahodatne in Mykolaiv Oblast was captured. Neither the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine nor Operational Command South mentioned the settlement in their reports over the last 24 hours. Based on the available intelligence, we've coded Blahodatne as captured. We disagree with the Russian Ministry of Defense report, however, that they have control over a three-kilometer radius from the settlement. A wide irrigation canal north of the settlement needs to be crossed, and the open terrain is not supportive of creating physical defensive lines in an arc. Russian airborne troops, or VDV, have likely established fire control with mortars. The Russian Ministry of Defense reported that north of Oleksandrivka, in Kherson, forces had reached the administrative border of Mykolaiv. The report validated our assessment from August 19th when we moved the line of conflict to the oblast border. Although the claim of capturing 36 square kilometers is likely accurate, the Ministry of Defense neglects to mention the area is unpopulated wheat fields. There were reports that Ukrainian forces had moved back into Oleksandrivka, but we cannot confirm if this is accurate. Operational Command South reported that a Russian ammunition depot was destroyed in Novovoznesensk, indicating that sometime between August 2nd and August 22nd, the settlement in the northern part of Kherson Oblast was recaptured by Russian forces. We've updated the map based on the intelligence. There are increasing reports of small arms fire within Kherson city, including social media videos. However, they only report the sound of gunfire and don't show activity. 
An Israeli observer in Kherson reported that occupation forces are so afraid of increasing partisan activity, they maintain a low profile. He stated the fear of ambush had reached a point where night patrols were shooting into bushes, sheds, and forested patches after hearing the slightest sound. We can't confirm the veracity of these reports, but they are consistent with occupation forces who are poorly commanded and undertrained. Our assessment in Kherson is unchanged from August 14th, which we recapped on yesterday's episode around minute 9 or 10. In Dnipropetrovsk and Zaporizhia, the situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is unchanged, with rhetoric and accusations continuing by both belligerents. The Russian United Nations ambassador, Vasily Nebenza, accused the United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres of playing games with the West and being the roadblock preventing inspection days after the Kremlin signaled they had accepted the United Nations inspection plan. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky repeated his appeal for the world to pressure Russia to leave the plant, saying in a statement, quote, The nuclear power plant is operating. There have been no emissions there as of today. The danger is 100% real. Not even 99%, it's 100%. End quote. In the same United Nations session, the United Kingdom and the United States blamed Russia for the crisis and stated there would be no crisis if Russia left the power plant. The Ukrainian GRU claimed that Russian forces shelled the ash pits at Zaporizhia thermal power plant. Burning coal at power plants creates fly ash, bottom ash, and boiler slag. Fly ash is fine particles captured in filters, while bottom ash settles in the furnaces and must be removed periodically. Radioactive trace elements naturally occur in coal, and settle in the bottom ash. The content in the ash pits has more background radiation than naturally occurring soil, but it is considered safe for outdoor storage. The Russian mortar strikes stirred up clouds of fly ash dust, creating concern in the region that the plant was on fire. Ukraine accused Russia of attempting to raise the background radiation level by stirring up the dust and accusing Ukraine of causing a nuclear accident. Anatoly Kurtyev, secretary of the Zaporizhia City Council, reported that Russian forces shelled the city overnight. Six apartment buildings were hit, but there was only light damage to facades and broken windows. Two KH-22 air-to-sea cruise missiles launched by the Russian Air Force exploded over the city of Dnipro. There are confirmed reports that one missile was intercepted, but debris fell in a populated area. At the time of recording, there wasn't information on what happened with the second missile. Marinets and Nikopol were shelled from across the Dnipro River, with reports of two injured. The intensity of artillery and rocket attacks dropped significantly after the Kremlin initially agreed on August 19th to let inspectors into the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. The rushed funeral of Daria Dugina was turned into a spectacle to try and rally the Russian population around the, quote, special military operation in Ukraine. Kremlin propagandist Dmitry Kiselev called for Russia to, quote, become even stronger after Dugina's death and, quote, uncompromisingly denazify and demilitarize Ukraine. 
Alexander Dugin, Dugina's father, reminded the audience that Russia is an empire and repeated the need for its restoration. He said during the open casket service, quote, The biggest price that has to be paid can be justified only by victory. End quote. On Russia One, TV personality Vladimir Soloyev told his audience after Dugina's service, quote, Actually, I am a terrorist. I would say you have three days for all civilians to leave Kharkiv, Mykolaiv, Odessa. Three days. If it is not done, we tear it all down, block by block. End quote. Soloyev also led a conversation blaming the United Kingdom and NATO for Dugina's death and repeated claims of Ukraine being a Nazi-led country. In the same segment, Soloyev revealed that the Russian industrial military complex is struggling, saying, quote, What is this dereliction? What is this complicity? I've spoken to a number of people directly involved in the production of military equipment. They just throw up their hands. There is no money here. There's no money there. Everyone is shifting responsibility to someone else. What's with shifting the blame? Do what you're told. If you can't, then shoot yourself. End quote. A second blast tore through the Russian town of Timonovo with ammunition exploding. Local officials released a statement after the explosion explaining that the sun caused it, saying, quote, As a result of hot weather, spontaneous combustion of ammunition occurred in the area of the village of Timonovo, which the sappers had not yet managed to neutralize. There were no casualties, but in order to ensure the safety of residents, the head of the Valuski district organized the transportation and accommodation of residents in the Krasnaya Polyana Sanatorium. End quote. Russia's Minister of Defense, Sergei Shoigu, acknowledged the operational slowdown in Russia and claimed that the reduction was planned. Shoigu told TASS that the operation has slowed to prevent civilian casualties and claimed the, quote, special operation is going according to plan. United States President Joe Biden is expected to announce a $3 billion military aid package for Ukraine today. Unlike previous packages drawn from existing United States military inventory, this package will fund the production of weapons and munitions for Ukraine from defense contractors, taking a long-term approach to supporting Ukraine. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz announced a commitment to send another 500 million euros of military aid to Ukraine in 2023. The package includes commitments to provide more Iris-T air defense systems, the first scheduled to arrive this September. Germany was criticized for its ambivalence at the start of the war, but has since accelerated the shipment of heavy weapons to Ukraine. Since June, 15 Gepard self-propelled anti-aircraft guns and 10 PZH-2000 155mm self-propelled howitzers, or SPGs, have been delivered. German software engineers integrated the Ukrainian fire control software into the PZH-2000 SPGs, and the system has been highly effective. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg reinforced that NATO would continue its support of Ukraine in the long term and called upon members to increase arms delivery to the embattled nation, saying, quote, We are committed to our partnership with Ukraine for the long term. We will help Ukraine transition to NATO standard equipment. Winter is coming, and it will be hard. And what we see now is a grinding war of attrition. This is a battle of wills, 
and a battle of logistics. Therefore, we must sustain our support for Ukraine for the long term. End quote. Pictures in Ukraine showed an unusual military vehicle possibly re-entering the field of combat, a British MK-1 ferret. The armored car was initially designed in 1946 and entered service in 1952. Over 4,000 were built and served the British military into the 1990s. The pint-sized reconnaissance vehicle was among almost two dozen other SUVs and armored cars sent to Ukraine by a private donor. Dozens of bomb threats continue to be made across Moldova, requiring authorities to take each threat seriously. The threats began after the European Union announced that Moldova's application to join the economic bloc had been accepted. Officials investigated more than 60 threats in July and are investigating approximately 15 a week. Moldova is Europe's poorest nation, and the closures and criminal investigations are buckling the nation's budget. Valeriu Pasa, an analyst with the Kishinev think tank Watchdog.md, told the Associated Press, quote, It blocks a lot of the resources—police, investigators, technical services. It's a type of bullying, I would say, or harassment of Moldovan state systems and public services. End quote. Officials in Moldova have traced threats coming from Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. The State Border Service of Ukraine awarded a pensioner with a medal for, quote, assistance in the protection of the state border. Valery Fedorovich, a private citizen, is credited with shooting down a Su-34 fighter plane during the start of the war with a high-caliber rifle that he owned. Military pilots call a lucky hit from small arms a, quote, golden BB, which Fedorovich scored. According to Fedorovich, the Su-34 made a low pass and circled the area to make a second run. That's when he took matters into his own hands. As impossible as the feat sounds, there are receipts, with a video capturing the moment near Cherniev during the war's opening days. Russian President Vladimir Putin has reinstated a Stalin-era policy that was ended in 1991 to boost the Russian population. In 1944, Stalin created the Mother Heroine Award for women who gave birth to 10 or more children that lived to be at least one year old. Women that meet the Kremlin's requirement will be awarded 1 million rubles in a lump-sum payment. Russia's population has been steadily declining since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Today, the average family has 1.2 children. The Russian Federation population has declined by more than 400,000 people in the first five months of 2022, with more than half leaving the country through immigration. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is some graphic detail in today's report, and if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. Ivan Fedorov, exiled mayor of Melitopol, reported that four Ukrainian citizens had been deported from the city to Moscow, where they face life in prison after being accused of insurgent activity. Fedorov claimed the four were tortured into giving fake confessions and weren't people responsible for the growing insurgent activity in the region. 
The United Nations reported they have a fact-finding team prepared to investigate alleged war crimes at the Olenivka penal colony. But for now, it is going, quote, nowhere. The panel would establish facts and report its findings to UN Secretary General Guterres. Currently, the UN has deemed the situation unstable around the prison and lacks assurances that investigators' safety will be guaranteed. To give you some background, on July 29th, an explosion tore through a recently renovated warehouse housing Ukrainian POWs, including the Azov Battalion that surrendered on May 12th. The blast allegedly killed 53 and wounded more than 130. Russian authorities claim the deaths were due to a Ukrainian rocket attack using HIMARS. Physical evidence, photos, videos, and satellite images of mass graves dug before the bombing indicate that the facility was bombed from the inside, not from an external attack. Chechen civil rights activist Salman Tupserkov was killed after two years in captivity. Tepserkov was the admin of the Telegram channel 1ADAT, which criticized Chechen authorities and documented human rights abuses. In September 2020, he was forced to make a video where he was naked and penetrated himself by sitting on a glass bottle. He declared he was doing this as punishment for cooperating with 1ADAT members. It is reported that Tepserkov was executed by placing a grenade in his mouth and remotely detonating it. Sergei Haidai, exiled Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that commandants looking for men to force into military service are confiscating passports and tearing up deferment letters. He claimed the actions of occupation authorities were alienating residents in occupied Luhansk and contributing to the growing insurrection. Haidai also reported that a new technique to coerce military service is slashing the pay of Ukrainians in the occupied territory. Due to the numerous problems, Russia is bringing in civilian specialists to fill critical jobs. He provided an example that a Russian water services worker is paid on average 139,000 rubles a month, while their Ukrainian counterpart is paid 10,000 rubles a month. A quick assessment. Paying the resident population starvation wages while bringing in citizens from the occupation nation to replace them is an aspect of genocide. Moving on to geopolitical news, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, in a video addressing the Second Crimea Platform Summit, called for Russia to end its annexation of the Crimean Peninsula. He said, quote, Turkey does not recognize the annexation of Crimea and has been openly stating since the first day that this step is illegitimate and illegal. This is a principled stance that has not only legal but also moral foundations. International law essentially determines that Crimea should return to Ukraine, of which it is an inseparable part. End quote. Erdogan cited Russia's historically poor treatment of Crimean Tartars and called the ethnic minority, quote, compatriots to Turkey fighting for a, quote, peaceful life in their homeland. The United States Department of State accused Russian occupiers in a 2015 report of imprisoning Crimean Tartars after the 2014 annexation of Crimea. The report alleges deportations, 
arrests without cause, torture, and imprisonment at the infamous Olenivka penal colony. Kaisa Ollengren, Minister of Defense of the Netherlands, believes that the West is becoming too accustomed to nuclear threats by the Kremlin and Russian state media, saying, quote, Of course we are aware of the Kremlin's discourse regarding nuclear weapons. I believe that underestimating this threat is a luxury we cannot afford. Russia has nuclear weapons. It has tactics for how to deploy it, so we have to take into consideration the fact that it might at some point deploy it. End quote. Alexander Lukashenko, the disputed president of Belarus, congratulated the Ukrainian people on Ukraine's Independence Day, saying, quote, I am convinced that today's disagreements will not be able to destroy the foundation of heartfelt neighborly relations between the people of the two countries, built over many centuries. Belarus will continue to advocate the preservation of harmony and the development of mutually respectful contacts on all levels. End quote. Lukashenko permitted Russia to use his country as a staging area for the initial invasion on February 24th and permitted Russia to launch missiles and fly aircraft over its territory. He has also authorized the donation of hundreds of tons of ammunition to bolster Russian supplies. A quick editor's note here. Read the room. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.